Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Tonight's presentation of Suspense. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Suspense and X-1. And as a bonus tonight, we bring you the Columbia Workshop. First of all, we're going to have Richard Whitmark keeping us in suspense from 1952. And that should be a fun episode. Of course, you know him from all the many, many movies that he's been in over the years. Following that, we have a chance to experience, of course, another episode of X-1. This episode uh, comes fairly highly rated. It's definitely one of the, one of the episodes that's uh, been enjoyed by many folks over the years. Um, and uh, that's from 1957, of course. And then we're going to jump back 20 years to, to go back to 1937 from this week to bring you the Columbia Workshop and get their take that many years ago, uh, 80 years ago, I guess, right? Yeah, 80 years ago. It's their take on science fiction at that point. Kind of interesting to hear. So, three wonderful shows. I hope you're going to enjoy all of them. And uh, we're running a little late, so I'll head out. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Richard Widmark in a true story of murder. Tonight's presentation of... Suspense. Tonight, you're going to hear a true story, a classic of American crime, as documented by criminologist Edmund Pearson. The story is called Mate Bram. Tonight's star, Mr. Richard Widmark. Tomorrow marks the opening of baseball season. Why, my team's been playing all year, Hap. Oh, what team is that? The Autolite electrical system in every Autolite-equipped car. And that's a real team. Because every unit, like the coil, distributor, generator, battery, starting motor, and set of spark plugs, are related by Autolite engineering design and manufacturing skill to give you the smoothest performance money can buy. But that team doesn't play ball, Harlow. <laughs> Does a lot more, Hap. Why, the Autolite electrical system goes to bat every time you start your car. And it keeps right on working every second your car is running. Works every time you light your lights, blow your horn, use your electric windshield wiper, radio, or heater. Real major league stuff, eh, Harlow? You bet your bat, Hap. So, friends, when your Autolite-equipped car needs replacement parts, always insist on Autolite original factory parts. It pays. Because from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, with Mate Bram and the performance of Mr. Richard Widmark, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. Dear Mr. Cooper, 
I write to you as my true friend who has given me wise counsel in the past, who knows of my faults and weaknesses, and who also knows my strength. Respecting the latter, I advise you that during the past year I have totally abstained from drink in any form. And because of that and hard study, I now have a first mate's ticket. It was in that berth that in Boston I signed on the barkentine Herbert Fuller, from where I now write you to give you a report of this fatal voyage. As a matter of truth, I myself might be dead when you read this, if it ever reaches you. I signed on, the master of the vessel being Charles I. Nash, in the company of the following men, each important to this account. Henry J. Slice Seaman. Aye, aye, sir. Here, Captain. Sign this line, Slice. Uh, you'll have the port watch. Aye, aye, sir. Uh, Charlie Brown, Seaman. Aye, sir. Uh, this line, Brown. Port watch. Aye, sir. Jonathan Spencer, steward. Yes, sir. Uh, right here, Spencer. Glad to have you aboard again. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Thomas Bram, first officer. Yes, Captain. This line. First trip, Mr. Bram. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Uh, August Blomberg, second officer. Aye, sir. This line, Mr. Blomberg. Aye, sir. There are two other names important to this account. Lester H. Monks, who came aboard as a passenger in the interest of his health as the nature of our voyage was to be tropical. The other name is Laura Nash, wife of Captain Nash. If I had known that this woman was going to sail with us, I never would have signed on. But when I saw her and learned that she was, I didn't sign off, although I could have. I stayed on because she was compelling, with a bold look, and because a man is always a hunter. That same day, still in harbor, when first I saw her, I went to the steward to learn more. Yes, sir, Mr. Uh, your name is Bram, isn't it? Yes, my name is Bram. Can I get a cup of tea? Yes, sir. It's hot. Are you a home man, Mr. Bram, or did you come from another ship? I came from another ship. What ship was it? The Antilles. She came in yesterday. We go out tomorrow. You don't like it, sure side, Mr. Bram. Nope, I find it too much trouble. You've sailed this ship before? Two trips. What is this woman that goes with us? She's the captain's wife, sir. I know that. Is she a good wife, Spencer? I don't know what you mean, sir. Well, she's younger than he is. Why does a young woman marry with a man like that and go sailing off on a ship with him and 11 other men? I don't know, Mr. Bram. No lady would do that, would she? I don't know many ladies, Mr. Bram. You won't find out asking me. You'd better ask her. Maybe I will. Hello, Blomberg. More deck cargo ready to load for it. I'll see to it. You want tea, Mr. Blomberg? Ah, tea time. Spencer, you sailed this ship before. What do you know about this woman that goes with us? Nothing. What kind of woman she is? The way she looks at a man. I don't know, sir. I don't know. When I left the steward, the second mate was asking the same questions I asked. I mentioned this to remind you that I was not alone with my thoughts. The same ones were in the minds of the others. Perhaps all of them. This then, my good friend, was the state and nature of the ship when we made to open sea.
first day passed in shaking her down. But then evening was upon us and the woman ate supper in the cabin at the officer's table, which also included the passenger, Mr. Monks. These meals, there were only six of them, may be exaggerated in my memory, but I think not. It seems now that nothing was discussed except that I abstained from the wine that was served. It was difficult because I didn't want to give as my reason for refusal a fact that you know, sir, that I am a slave to drink unless I abstain entirely. Your glass, Laura? Yes, thank you. Uh, Mr. Monks? Yes, please. Thank you, Captain. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bram? No, sir, I don't want any. Hmm. Mr. Blomberg? Yeah, I like good wine. Yeah. yeah. Are, uh, are you a religious man, Mr. Bram? No, sir, not overly so. Wonder if that was why you wouldn't have a glass of wine with us. No, I don't care for wine. What you drink, then? Rum like the pirates? <laughs> I don't drink at all. I didn't think that a seafaring man lived that didn't drink, Mr. Bram. Seafaring men are much like any men, Mr. Monk. Some of them drink, some of them don't. Uh, wine with a meal and a good whiskey or brandy at the end of a watch. Uh, nothing can take their place. Is there a reason you don't drink, Mr. Bram? Yes. I don't like to. Have you ever drunk? No, I never have. I don't believe that. I've heard that some men don't drink because they expose their true selves when they do. Do you have a true self that you are hiding? I'm sorry to disappoint you, madam. You are seeing my true self, a man who doesn't drink. Oh, there must be a reason. And I'll find out what it is. That's enough, Laura. You're too forward. Eat your supper. As I stated, my memory of that first supper may now be exaggerated, but I think not. There was more drinking after the meal, but I left, as it was my watch. I know that the second mate stayed with the woman, though, even after Captain Nash had retired to his cot in the chart room. Now, this sleeping arrangement must be explained, because it's important. The captain with a cot in the chart room, forward in the main house. The woman in the first cabin, starboard. The passenger in the second. Across the companionway, I in the first cabin port, Mr. Blomberg in the second. I heard the woman come to her quarters after I'd been relieved. And I think that night, I started dreaming about her and her taunting smile. And with her, I dreamed of being drunk. The next day passed the same, and the next night... There's little enough of interest on a ship and anything unusual is left upon. On this ship, it was my sobriety. The first sign of trouble came upon us during the third evening. And I swear upon our friendship, sir, that it was not of my doing. I was only walking aft past the main house. Mr. Bram. Yes? I'm in my quarters. I'm still on watch, Mr. Blomberg. What do you want? I think of you too much today. Now I don't like you. What you think is your business, not mine. And that I don't like you? It's a man's privilege to like or dislike. You don't care? <laughs> well, there'd be nothing for me to do about it if I did. There is something. 
Oh? Stop acting like you're better than us, all of us. I'm no better or worse than anyone. You think you are? You think so because we drink and you don't? You think you saint or something? You're wrong, and I'll thank you to leave me alone. No. Let go of me. I give you a chance to make me wrong. I give you a chance to act like man. I ask you now, come in my quarters, drink with me like friends. I don't want a drink, Blumberg. He's insult not to drink when man asks you. Leave off me. Take it as an insult if you like. I say I have my reasons and my rights to do as I choose. Now mind your own affairs, there'll be no trouble. Don't try to run me. You woman. <coughs> Leave off me. Oh, you, I drink. Mr. Brown, Mr. Blumberg. Kill you next time. What is the meaning of this? There were... Some words, sir. What words? He is woman. Words about Laura? No, sir. I've seen the way both of you are mooning about her. There's an end to that right now. You'll both eat in your own quarters from this day on. Stay away from her. Your officers on this ship. Now go to your quarters, Mr. Bram. I see. There'll be a report on this, Mr. Blomberg. You'll relieve the watch. Mr. Bram. What happened? There was some trouble. About what? Nothing, man trouble. I heard what my husband said. Were you fighting over me? No. Why should you fight over me? You've hardly looked at me. You're a married woman, Mrs. Nash. I think that makes more difference to you than it does to me. Why are you so good? <laughs> you couldn't choose a word farther from the truth, and I think I'd better go inside. Wait, why did you fight? Because he was teasing you about not drinking, wasn't it? He told me he was going to. Yes, that was why. Are you playing the game with me, too? Oh, I'm intrigued. You're a man with a past, aren't you? And you won't drink because you're afraid someone will find out what it is. Think what you like. Don't you know that's a challenge to a woman like me? Wouldn't you even drink with me? Yes. Yes, perhaps with you. Is that a promise? No, Mrs. Nash. I promise nothing anymore. I've been ordered to my quarters. I'd better go. <laughs> Mr. Cooper, sir, I feel as though I should apologize even to you who know me so well, but I will not. Because I must shamelessly recount all details. There were no more words except ship words between Mr. Blomberg and myself. We ate in our quarters, and for the three days following the quarrel on deck, Captain Nash vigilantly allowed his wife no freedom on the ship. I hope you'll understand that, however wrong, her words to me lived in my mind, and they grew. So when I was relieved of watch on the fourth night following, I was very pleased to find her waiting inside the open door to her quarters. Mr. Bram? Yes? I've been waiting for you. Won't you come in? Where's Captain Nash? In the chart room. Asleep. I knew he wouldn't watch me forever. What do you want? Just to talk to someone who's young. Uh, won't you sit down? Thank you. There's no harm. I want you to know that. All right. Laura, there's no harm. Whether I'm married or not, I'm a woman. Am I not? Yes, yes, you are. And I deserve to have the company that I like. Mm-hmm. I brought a bottle of wine. I see that you have. 
I stole it when he wasn't looking. You took a chance. I thought it would be nice. Shall I open it? Yes, if you like. Here you are. Thank you. You haven't been very nice to me, have you? I've hardly been able to be anything to you. Then shall we drink to how nice you can be? All right. Oh, I drank, my friend, the bottle of wine. And when I left her, I went into Mr. Blomberg's quarters and stole what he had and took it to my own. The warmth that I remembered in my middle body. The courage I assumed. The eyes that weren't really mine, seeing things. The false happiness, the excitement. The great, proud feeling of self-satisfaction. The elation. The slipping away from reality. And the wonder of it. The pleasure of numbness. The peace. And the luxury of knowing that when you went to bed, you'd sleep. What's the matter? What's the matter? There's murder. What? What's that you say? You've got to come up on the deck. The captain and his wife, Mr. Blomberg, they've all been murdered. They're dead. is bringing you Mr. Richard Widmark in Mate Bram. Tonight's production in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Say, Harlow, where do you expect the Autolite team to finish? Well, I don't expect it to finish at all, Hap. That Autolite electrical system's job is never done. It works when you start your car and every second your engine runs, as well as when you blow the horn, turn on your lights, electric windshield wiper, radio, or heater. That Autolite electrical team must have some real fans, Harlow. You bet it does have. The many leading makes of our finest cars, trucks, and tractors that use Autolite electrical systems as original equipment. And in that great team, every unit and component part is related by Autolite engineering design and manufacturing skill to give the finest performance money can buy. Who manages this team, Harlow? Your car dealer or authorized Autolite service station. You can quickly learn the location of your nearest authorized Autolite service station in the classified section of your telephone directory under Automobile Electrical Service. Treat your car to a periodic checkup soon. It pays. And remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Richard Widmark in Elliot Lewis's production of Mate Bram, 
A true story well calculated to keep you in suspense. It was eight bells, midnight, when I went into the woman's quarters. Sometime later when I left. I didn't want a drink, but what could I do? Explain myself by telling her about the last time? The fights, the broken windows, the jail, and the other times? I should have, but considering the situation, I doubt any man would. I remember leaving, going to Mr. Blomberg's quarters, then to my own. But there, after another while... My memory stops. I have lost an hour, my good friend, or perhaps two, until Mr. Monks awoke me some minutes before four with a gun in his hand. There's a murderer on board. He killed them all with an axe. Uh, Mr. Uh, Brand, what is the matter? What are you doing with that gun? None of us is safe. There's a murderer on board. What are you doing? Water first. You've been drinking, Mr. Bram. Yes, yes, I have. You'll have to sober up. You're in command now. I'm all right. I'm all right. Where are they? Mrs. Nash is in her cabin. I'll show you. There. Ah. Yes. What do you know of this? Nothing. Nothing at all. How did you learn? Something woke me up. It was like a scream, but I didn't know with all the sounds of the ship. When was that? I can't be sure. I went to sleep again. Then I woke up again. What woke you that time? I, I, I don't know, but I began to worry about the sound I'd heard, the scream. I got up and went to tell the captain about it. He was dead. I was sure the sound meant something, and I came to Mrs. Nash's cabin. Then I saw Mr. Blomberg's door open and found him the same way. There's a maniac on board. Come with me. We'll look at the others. We looked in the quarters of the others and found no weapon. And I'll state now that when I looked in my locker for my gun, I also looked for bloodstains on the clothes in there and on the clothes I was wearing as I'd slept fully dressed. And I found none. Then, pursuing the actions of Mr. Muggs and me, we awoke the steward and went on deck... Wait. There's the axe. That's the one. That's the one that did it. Get rid of it, Mr. Brown. Throw it overboard. The fiend might use it on us next. No, Mr. Brown. We can't do that, sir. Throw it overboard. That's the weapon. We've got to keep it. By law, we've got to. All right, all right. We'll keep it aboard. It slice at the wheel. We'll see what he knows. What is it? What's that axe? There's been murder aboard, Slice. How long have you been at the wheel? Two hours, sir. Who is it? Brown and Cantwell share your watch, don't they? Yes, sir. Where are they? At Forest, sir. Standing lookout. Who's dead? The captain and his wife and Mr. Blomberg. Have you seen anybody on deck, Slice, while you've been at the wheel? Only you, Mr. Bram. I didn't see nobody else. I didn't remember. It's a frightful thing to have a man say you were out on deck and not remember. I tried to carry on without arousing suspicion. And this is what I learned. That I had come out and asked for Mr. Blomberg. And upon being told that he was tending the foresail with two deckhands, I'd gone back inside. 
And that then Mr. Blomberg had come aft and gone inside, too. And that he'd never come out again. I couldn't help feeling guilty, but on the other hand, I couldn't help heeding my instinct to protect myself. For example, at my earliest opportunity, when I was not seen, I took that axe and I threw it overboard. But that was wrong. I acted in excitement and fear, and I'm sorry now that I did. When dawn came, I ordered the ship to come about and set her back toward Boston. Soon after this was done, the steward came to me. The crew wants me to talk to you, sir. Yes, what about they all say they'll be afraid to go to sleep tonight for fear of being murdered in their bunks. All right. All right, I'll have them all sleep on deck where a watch can be kept over them. And if you will, Spencer, you can tell them all to come on deck in an hour for the funeral services. Funeral services, sir? Yes. We can't put those people over the side, sir. By law, we've got to take them back. Well, yes, yes, of course, Spencer, but it's not good to have them on the ship. I mean to put them in the longboat and tow it astern. Now bring them out. And with Captain Nash, bring his Bible. It's open on the table next to his cot. It is, sir. I don't know why I thought I knew where the captain's Bible was. I wasn't sure that I did know. But I was afraid to ask Spencer. So once more, on impulse and in fear, I acted. That night, I went aft to the man at the wheel and ordered him below to get my glass, telling him I'd seen a light in the distance. When he was gone, lashing the wheel, I turned with a knife to the line towing the longboat to cut the bodies adrift and to finally destroy the evidence. Mr. Bram! Mr. Bram, stop that! Uh, Don't do that, Mr. Bram. Leave off, Spencer. It's not good to have dead people following along behind. Leave off! What's this for? For killing those people out there. No. It was you, Mr. Bram. No, I didn't. You were with the wife last night drinking. Who says that? Mr. Slice. Mr. Blomberg told him. That's no proof. You know where his Bible was, sir. And that's nothing either. You relieved Slice at the wheel. And after that, the axe was missing. Mr. Brown saw you throw it overboard. I didn't kill them. Then why were you cutting the lo- longboat free, Mr. Bram? Oh, still, Mr. Bram. Confess and ease yourself, Mr. Bram. No, I won't confess. Nobody saw me kill them because I didn't. I didn't. Come along, Mr. Bram. <gasps> where are you taking me? To lock you up. By law, we've got to do it. They put me in irons, locked in my own quarters. And here I have stayed. There have been no more murders in the three days past, which does not stand in favor of another killer being aboard and my being innocent. What I have written, my good friend, is the whole truth. And I beg of you to be my legal counsel when my case comes to trial, as I'm sure it will. In my own mind, I am not convinced that I'm guilty. For one reason, that however violent I've been, I have never killed before. Before. Never killed before. If I could only remember. If I could just remember. Why can't I? Why can't I? Why? Why can't I remember? Remember?
As the passenger aboard the Fuller, I was called along with the crew to testify in both of Mr. Bram's trials. And each time I stayed to hear him pronounced guilty by two separate courts of law of a crime he steadfastly swore that he did not remember committing. Suspense. A true story presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Richard Widmark. And here he is once again, our star, Richard Widmark. It's always good to have you aboard, Dick. Thank you, Harlow. I uh, sort of feel like one of the family since this is my fourth appearance on Suspense this season. Well, you are a member of the family, Dick. The Autolite family, which includes 98,000 Autolite distributors and dealers in the United States... Nearly 30,000 men and women in 28 great Autolite plants from coast to coast, and the 18,000 people who have invested a portion of their savings in Autolite. It's a big family, Harlow, and I'm proud to be included. Now, we're all proud to be members of the Autolite family, Dick, because Autolite serves the greatest names in the industry. And every Autolite product is backed by constant research and precision built to the highest standards of quality and performance. So remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. Next week, the dramatic recreation of a race five brave men made with death. A true story based on the writings of one of those men. Our star will be Mr. Herbert Marshall. The story is called... The Diary of Captain Scott, presented next week on Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis, with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Mate Bram was written for Suspense by Gil Dowd. Featured in the cast were Joan Banks... Joseph Kearns, Ben Wright, Lou Merrill, Steve Roberts, Roy Glenn, and Robert North. Richard Widmark appeared through the courtesy of 20th Century Fox, producers of the Technicolor musical with a song in my heart starring Susan Hayward. And remember next week on Suspense, Mr. Herbert Marshall in The Diary of Captain Scott. Autolite Staple batteries, Autolite Standard or Resistor type spark plugs at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is the CBS Radio Network. Blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire.
From the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the discovery of Morniel Mathaway by William Tent. Everyone is astonished at the change in Morniel Mathaway since he was discovered. Everyone, that is, but me. They remember him as an unbathed and untalented Greenwich Village painter who began almost every second sentence with I and ended every third one with me. You see, I understand the change in him, because I was there the day he was discovered. We were talking about his discovery that day. I was sitting carefully balanced on the one wooden chair in his cold little Bleecker Street studio, because I was too sophisticated to sit in the easy chair. Come on, Dave, take a comfortable seat. Oh, no, no, Morning. oh, no, I know about that chair. Now, what do you mean? It's the only comfortable chair in the room. Yeah, I know, I know, look at it. Broken down springs, very high in the front and low in the back. Sure, it conforms with the position of the spine. Yeah, sure, sure. And when you sit in it, things begin sliding out of your pockets. Loose change, keys, wallets, anything. What do you do, Moyle? Pay the rent on your studio with that easy chair? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, it is rather profitable. Mm. And that's why I'll sit on the wooden chair, if you don't mind. Oh, now, don't be bourgeois. Well, I notice you always sit on the bed. That's because I'm a good host. I see. Well, how's the painting going? Oh, great, great, fabulous. You sell any paintings? No. You know, Dave, I can't wait for the day when some dealer, some critic with an ounce of brain sees my work. I can't miss, Dave. I know I can't miss. I'm just too good. Sometimes I get frightened at how good I am. Why, it's almost too much talent for one man. Uh, well, there's always... Not that it's too much talent for me. I'm big enough to carry it, fortunately. I'm large enough of soul. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Now, if you don't mind... Do you know I... what I was thinking about this morning? No, but to tell you the truth, I don't... I was thinking about Picasso, Dave. Picasso and Rouen. I'd just gone for a walk through the pushcart area to have my breakfast. Uh, <laughs> you know the old hands quicker than the eyes. Yes, I know. I've seen you do it. You're the only man I know who can ask directions to Houston Street and fill his pockets full of bananas at the same time. Oh, well, society owes the artist something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I started to think about the art of modern painting. I think about that a lot, Dave. It troubles me. You do, huh? Well, I... I was thinking, who is really doing important work in painting today? Who is really an unquestionable great? I could think of only three names. Picasso, Ruol, and me. Well, naturally. Just three names, no more. Oh, it made me feel very lonely, Dave. Yeah, well, I can see that. But and then, then you... I asked myself, why is this so? Has absolute genius always been so rare? Why has my impending discovery been delayed so long? Oh, I've thought about it for a long time, Dave. I've thought about it humbly, carefully, because it's an important question. And this is the answer I came up with. <laughs> Don't bother waiting for the answer that Morning came up with. It turned out to be a theory of aesthetics I'd heard at least a dozen times before from a dozen other painters in the village. Morning was a bad painter, there was no question about it. I say that not only for my opinion. I've roomed with two modern painters and I've been married for a year to another, but... Well, for example, a friend of mine, 
a fine critic of modern art, took a look at one of Morneau's paintings, which he hung over my fireplace in spite of my protests, and just kind of stared slack-jawed. Uh, what, uh, what, what does he call that technique? Well, he says it's smudge on smudge. Well, I can believe it. Smudge on smudge, white on white, non-objectivism, neo-abstractionism, call it what you like. There's nothing there, nothing. Well, it doesn't even have the interest of those paintings that chimpanzee did a couple of years ago. He's just another of those loud-mouthed, frowsy, frustrated dilettantes that infest the village. Why do you waste your time with him? Well, for one thing, he lives right around the corner, and he's kind of colorful in his own sick way. And he does have one great talent. It's not in painting. No, no. Now, you see, I just get by as far as living expenses are concerned. Things like good paper to write on, good books for my library. Well, I can't touch them. And sometimes the yearning gets too great. You know, a newly published collection by Wallace Stevens. Well, if I find one I want, I just go over to Morneals and tell him about it. He doesn't lend you money. Oh, no, no, no. Now, you see, we go out to the bookstore and we come in separately. And then I start a conversation with the proprietor about some very expensive out-of-print item I'm thinking of ordering. And Morneal just says, don't mind me, I'm browsing. Well, that's the high sign. I'm browsing. Well, what happens? Well, while I'm keeping the proprietor talking, Morneal snaffles the Stevens. Isn't that just a little bit, uh... Oh, well, I, I intend to pay for them, of course, just as soon as I'm a little ahead. Well, why does he do this for you? Oh, well, I pay off. I go through the same routine at an art supply store so Morneal can get canvas and paint and brushes. Of course, I really have to pay for Morneal's browsing. I have to suffer through listening to him, and then my conscience bothers me. Oh, it does. Yes, you see, I intend to pay for my things, but I know he doesn't. And that's why my conscience bothers me. Well, here he was the day he was discovered, sitting in his room, and Morneal was running on about his own genius. No, I can't be as unique as I feel. Other people must be born with a potential of such great talent, but it's destroyed in them before they can reach artistic maturity. Why? How? Well, let's examine the role that society plays in all of this. What's that? You got a hi-fi set? Nonsense. That's a crass materialistic concept that I should... Something is happening. Hey, when did you put the purple lights in? Purple? Oh, what's that? Look, look, it's it's shimmering. It's it's coming right through the wall. It looks like a box. We can't both be having an artistic vision. You're not the type. No, I'm not. I'm not drunk either. Look out, something's going to happen. Morneal Mathaway? Who are you? Where'd you come from? You are Morneal Mathaway? Yes, yes, yes. My name is Glesku. I bring you greetings from 2487 A.D. Oh, 2487 A.D.? I realize this is a difficult phenomenon for you to grasp entirely, but here I am. We will now indulge in the 20th century custom of shaking hands. Mr. Morneal Mathaway? Oh, well, sure, sure, sure. Shake, yes. And you, sir? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I don't mind. Shake. What a moment. What a supreme moment. Oh, well, what do you mean, what a moment? What's so special about it? Are you the inventor of time travel? Me, an inventor? No, 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 no. Time travel was invented by Antoinette Ingeborg, and, well, that was after your time. It's hardly worth going into at the moment, especially since I only have half an hour. Why half an hour? The skin drum can only be maintained that long. The skin drum is, well, call it the transmitting device that enables me to appear in your period. There is such an enormous expenditure of power required that a trip into the past is made only every 50 years. The privilege is awarded as a sort of go-bell. I believe I have the word right. It is go-bell, isn't it? The award made in your time? Well, you wouldn't mean Nobel by any chance. A Nobel Prize? That's it. The Nobel Prize. A trip is awarded to outstanding scholars as a kind of Nobel Prize. 
Once every 50 years, the man selected by the Gardamax is the most preeminent, that uh, sort of thing, you know. Up to now, of course, it's always gone to historians, or they frittered it away on the siege of Troy and the, the first atom bomb explosion at uh, Los Alamos, uh, or the, uh, well, the discovery of America, things like that. But this year... Yes? Well, what, uh, what kind of scholar are you? I am an art scholar. My specialty is art history, and my special field in art history is... What? 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 You, Mr. Mathaway. In my own period, I may say without much contradiction, I am the greatest living authority on the life and works of Morneal Mathaway. My special field is you. Dave. Dave, did you hear that? Dave. Dave! I heard. Do you mean... You mean that I... I'm famous? That? Famous? Famous. You, my dear sir, are beyond fame. You are one of the immortals the human race has produced. That famous? That famous. <sighs> who, who is the man with whom modern painting in its full glory is said to have definitely begun? Who is the man whose designs and color have dominated architecture for the past five centuries? Who is responsible for the arrangement of our cities, the shape of our artifacts, the, the texture of our clothing? Me. You. No other man in the history of art has exerted such a massive influence over design. To whom can I compare you, sir? To what other artist in history can I possibly compare you? Rembrandt? Da Vinci? Rembrandt and Da Vinci in the same breath as you. That's ridiculous. They, they lacked your universality, your taste for the cosmic. Wow! Uh, Mr. Glesko, excuse me. Do you happen to know of a poet named David Danziger? Did much of his work survive? Is that you? Yes, that's me. Dave Danziger? Well, no, 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 I, I don't think so. The only poet I can remember for this time and this part of the world is uh, uh, Peter Tebb. Tebb? Never heard of him. Then this must have been before he was discovered. But you see, I, I am an art scholar. Well, you see, checking my chronometer, I see my time is getting short. But it is an overwhelming delight for me to be standing in your studio, Mr. Mathaway, and, and looking at you at last in the flesh. I wonder if you would mind obliging me... With a small favor. Oh, sure, sure. You name it. Nothing's too good for you. What do you want? I wonder, I'm sure you don't mind, could, could you possibly let me look at your painting? The one that you're working on at this very moment. Well, sure, sure. I, I have one right over here. Just, uh, now pull the easel around. There you are. I, uh, I intend to call this Figured Figurines Number 29. Hmm? Oh, but this... this... What's the matter? Well, surely this... This isn't your work, Mr. Matherway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my work, all right. Figured figurines number 29. Recognize it? No, I do not recognize it, and that is a fact for which I am extremely grateful. Could I see something else, please? Something a uh, little later. Well, that's the latest. Everything else is earlier. Here, here, you might like this. Now, I call this figured figurines number 22. I think it's the best of my early period. Oh, oh, dear. You know, well, this, this looks like a, a smears of paint on top of other smears of paint. Right. Only I call it smudge on smudge. But you probably know all about that, being such an authority on me. And now, here we have figured figurines number two. You, do you mind leaving these figurines, Mr. Mathaway? I'd like to see something of yours with, with color, with color and form. Well, I haven't done any real color work for a long time. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. I, I have one over here somewhere, uh, an old canvas. I, I was going to paint over it. Uh, ah, here we are. This is one of the few examples of my mauve and mottled period that I've kept. Oh, I, I can't imagine why. It's positively, it's... Um, oh, 
Oh, dear. Oh, now, wait a minute. Let me show you some of my intestinal period. Ah, here. Here's a particularly good one. It's called large intestine rampant. Ah, you like it? Uh, oh, please, please. I, you know, I, I, I think I'd like to sit down. Well, take the comfortable chair. And here's another one called small intestine incisive. Oh, it's rather good, don't you think? I managed to avoid completely any definite line. You notice that? I, I don't suppose you ever drink of Glafax. Oh, no, no, of course you don't. It hasn't been invented yet. I... Oh, now here's one that's bound to be great. It's one of my earlier smudge on smudges. It's called fly ash. Mm. I painted it by coating the canvas with slow-setting glue mm. and leaving it out on the window for about two and a half hours. Notice the delicate deposit of soot. Oh, please. Please, Miss Matherwood, please, please. Oh, I've got lots more. You know, I don't understand this. All of these canvases, this, this is obviously before you discover yourself in your, your true technique. But I'm looking for a sign, a, a hint to the genius that is to come, and I find... Well, how about I this find... one? Here, here. Oh, please, 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 please. Oh, take that away. Oh, oh dear. Oh, dear, no, no. Look, I'll have to leave soon. I, I don't understand this at all. Let me show you something here, gentlemen. Here, <clears throat> a pocket edition of the source... The Complete Paintings of Morneal Mathaway, 1928-1996. Were you born in 1928? Yep. May 23rd, 1928. Here. Look at the first painting. Oh, that, that's beautiful. I mean, the color, it, that's incredible. Oh. Oh, well, that stuff. Well, why didn't you tell me you wanted that kind of stuff? You mean, you mean you have paintings like this, too? No, 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 not paintings. One painting... Oh, I did it last week as a sort of an experiment, but I wasn't satisfied with the way it turned out, so I, I gave it to the girl downstairs. Would you like to look at it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very much. Very much. Well, here, I'll just toss your book on the bed. Come on, it won't take a minute or two. Oh, she isn't at home. I thought she'd be home now. Oh, I did so want you to see that painting. I want to see it. I, I want to see anything that looks like your mature work. But time is getting short. The chronometer... I'll tell you what. Anita here has a couple of cats that she asked me to feed when she's away for a while. So she's given me the key to her apartment. Suppose I, uh, browse upstairs and get it. But she... Suppose I browse through my room and get it. Get it? Oh, yeah, 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 you go ahead and browse, sure. Fine, fine, but please hurry. Oh, sure, sure, I'll hurry. I won't take long browsing. Well, that was it, the high sign. I'd seen Morneal Mathaway in action too many times as a shoplifter not to understand it. He was going upstairs to lift that book that he'd dropped on the bed. I knew he hadn't ever painted a picture like the one in the book, but he would now. Only he wouldn't paint them. He copied them. Well, I started talking automatically. You uh, paint yourself, Mr. Glasgow? No, 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 no. I, of course, I wanted to be an artist when I was a boy. I imagine every critic starts out that way, but I found it far easier to write about paintings than to do them. Once I began reading the life of Morneal Mathaway, I knew I had found my field. Not only do I empathize closely with his paintings, but he seems so much like a person I, I could have known and, and liked. That's one of the things that puzzles me. He's quite different from what I had imagined. Yes, I'll bet he is. Of course, history has a way of adding romance to an important figure. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear, I'm running out of time here. Do you, do you think you'll be back with the key soon? I've I practically no time left. 
I've just got to get upstairs to the time translator. I, I just can't wait. I'll, I'll have to hurry now. Oh, dear, no, I did want to see an original Mathaway. I did want to. Mr. Mathaway, I... Oh! What's the matter? The time translator, it isn't here. It's gone. Uh, the book is gone, too. And Mathaway, he stranded me here. He must have figured out that getting inside and closing the door made it return. Yeah, he's a great figure, him. And he'll probably figure out a very plausible story to tell the people in your time to explain how the whole thing happened. Why should he work his head off in the 20th century when he can be an outstanding hero-worship celebrity in the 25th? Yes, well, what'll happen if they ask him to paint merely one picture? Oh, he'll probably tell them he's already done his work and feels he can no longer add anything of importance to it. He'll no doubt end up giving lectures on himself. Don't worry. He'll make out. It's you I'm worried about. You're stuck here, aren't you? Are they likely to send a rescue party after you? No. Every scholar who wins the award has to sign a waiver of responsibility in case he doesn't return. Uh, no, I'm... I'm stuck here. Tell me, is it... Is it very bad living in this period? Well, not so bad. Uh, of course, you'll need a social security card. And I don't know how you go about getting one at your age. And well, the immigration authorities may want to question you since you're sort of an illegal alien. Oh, dear, dear. That's, uh, that's awful. Mm. Wait a minute. It needn't be. I'll tell you what. Morneal has a social security card. He had a job a couple of years ago. He keeps his birth certificate in that drawer along with his other papers. Now, why don't you just assume his identity? He'll never show you up as an imposter. Yes, but do you think I could? Won't I be... Uh, well, won't his friends, his, his relatives... No, he hasn't got any family, and I'm about the only friend he's got. You could get away with it. Maybe grow a beard and dye it blonde. Naturally, the big problem would be earning a living. Being a specialist on Mathaway in the art movements derived from him wouldn't get you set an awful lot right now. But I could paint. I've always dreamed of being an artist. I don't have much talent, but there are all kinds of artistic novelties I know about, all kinds of graphic innovations that don't exist in your time. Surely that would be enough, even without talent, to make a living for me on some third or fourth-rate level? Yeah, it certainly was. But not on a third or fourth-rate level. Mr. Glesko, that is Monio Mathaway, is the finest painter alive today and the unhappiest. After his last wildly successful exhibition, I remember he said to me, What's the matter with all these people praising me like that? I don't have an ounce of real talent in me. All my work is completely derivative. I've tried. I've tried to do something, anything that was completely my own. But I'm so steeped in Mathaway that I can't seem to make my own personality come through. And those idiotic critics go on raving about me. And the work isn't even my own. Well, then whose is it? Mathaway's, of course. We thought there couldn't be a time paradox. I wish you could read all the scientific papers on the subject. They fill whole libraries because it isn't possible that time specialists argue for a painting to be copied from a future reproduction and so have no original artist. But that's what I'm doing. I'm copying from that book by memory. Uh, look, Glesku, yeah, that is Mathaway. Don't knock yourself out. But it's dishonest. No, it isn't. You're deliberately trying not to copy those paintings. You're working so hard at it that you refuse to think about that book or even discuss it. As a matter of fact, when I tried to get you to talk about it a little while ago, you couldn't actually remember it. That's true. That's true. You're the real Monial Mathaway, and there's no paradox. You're actually painting those pictures. You're not copying them from memory. I know in my heart that they're not mine. All right, I'll forget it. Anyway, you're a much nicer guy than Mathaway ever was. And besides, a buck is a buck. <laughs>
You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features Lulu by Clifford D. Simak, a story which demonstrates that a spaceship should be a darb, a smasher, a pip, a butte, but man all battle stations if it ever becomes a sweetheart of a ship. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, X-1 has brought you The Discovery of Morniel Mathaway, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by William Tenn and adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in our cast were Leon Janney as Mathaway, Guy Rep as the critic, Wendell Holmes as Glasgow, and Les Damon as Dave. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. The Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight the Columbia Workshop offers as its 36th production in a series devoted to experimental radio, Carl Chopek's famous play of the machine men, R.U.R. The place, an island. Time, the future. Rossum's Universal Robots. Seller? Yes. To the E.B. Heisen Agency, New York, USA. We beg to acknowledge receipt of order for 5,000 robots. As you are sending your own vessel, please dispatch as cargo equal quantities of salt and hot coal for RUR. The same to be credited as part payment of the amount due to us. We beg to remain for Rossum's Universal Robots. Yours truly, Harry Dumman, General Manager. Uh, another letter to E.M. McVicker and Company, Southampton, England. We undertake no guarantee for freight damage in transit. Consequently, we must insist on full payment for the 5,000 robots shipped to you last month. Yours truly, etc. That's all, Sarah. Yes, sir. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, Miss Glory. We've been terribly busy. Now, what can I do for you? Mr. Dorman, I should like to look over your famous factory. You no doubt know, Miss Glory, that our method of manufacturing people is a closely guarded secret. I thought perhaps you'd make an exception. Surely, as President Glory's daughter, you've had chance enough to examine the robots we've sent over to you? I've observed the way they work, Mr. Dorman. That's all. I see. Well, Miss Glory, we shall consider it a special honor to show you more than we do the rest. But you must agree not to My word of honor. Thank you. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Well, I... You're very young? Twenty-one. Why do you ask? I was wondering, that's all. Uh, you will make a long stay with us, won't you? <laughs> that depends on how much of the factory you show me. You shall see everything. But first, wouldn't you like to hear the story of the invention? Yes, indeed. Well, it was in the year 1920 that old Rossum, the great physiologist, took himself to this distant island for the purpose of studying the ocean fauna. This time, he attempted to imitate the living matter known as protoplasm. Mm-hmm. He worked until he suddenly discovered a substance which behaved exactly like living matter, although its chemical composition was different. Miss Glory, 
That was a tremendous moment. I imagine it was. Now, the thing to do now was to get the life out of the test tube and form organs, bones, nerves, and the rest. This artificial living matter of his had a raging thirst for life. And so he set about imitating nature. And what happened? Well, after several years, he made an artificial dog, which died in a few days. And then old Rossum started on the manufacture of man. He was mad, of course. The old crank actually wanted to make people. But you do make people. Approximately, Miss Gloria. Oh, I see. Old Rossum decided to manufacture everything, as in the human body. It took him ten years to produce a bungling attempt that was to have been a man. It lived for three days only. Then up came young Rossum. Young Rossum? Yes, his son, an engineer. Oh. When he saw what a mess of it his father was making, he said, uh, it's absurd to spend ten years making a man. If you can't make him quicker than nature, you, you might as well shut up shop. And what did young Rossum do? He invented a worker with a minimum amount of requirements. He rejected man and made a robot. Mechanically, they are more perfect than we are. They have enormously developed intelligence. But they have no soul. How do you know they have no soul? Have you ever seen what a robot looks like inside? No, I haven't. Very neat, very simple, everything in flawless order. An engineer's product. More perfect than a product of nature. The robots I've seen are so strange and quiet. Do they live very long? Well, the best grade live about 20 years. And then they die? They get used up. Uh, Suller. Yes, sir. Come over here. I want you to meet Miss Glory. How do you do, Miss Glory? Very well, thank you, Suller. You must find it terribly dull in this out-of-the-way spot. I don't know, Miss Glory. Why? Where do you come from? From the factory. Oh, well, you were born there. I was made there. Made there? <laughs> Sully's a robot, the best grade. A robot? Oh, she can't be. Oh, I admit she doesn't seem to be made of different material from us. We make rather good skin. Feel her face, Miss Glory. No. No, I don't want to do anything of the kind. Uh, turn around, Sulla. Oh, stop. Stop. Sulla's a girl like me. This is outrageous. Sulla, why do you take part in such a hoax? I am a robot. No. No, you're not telling the truth. Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Glory. Sulla is a robot. It's a lie. Then I must convince you. I shall take her into the dissecting room and cut her open. You wouldn't have her killed. Well, you can't kill a machine. Oh, they all were so cruel to you, Sulla. You mustn't put up with it. You mustn't. I am a robot. That doesn't matter. Sulla, you wouldn't let yourself be cut to pieces. Yes. You're not afraid of death? I cannot tell, Miss Glory. Do you know what they will do to you in the dissecting room? Yes. I should cease to move. That's death, Sulla. Aren't you afraid of death? No. You see, Miss Glory... The robots have no interest in life. They have no enjoyment. Why, they are less than so much grass. Oh, stop. Send her away. You may go, Sulla. Yes, Mr. Dominic. Oh, how terrible. It's outrageous what you're doing. Oh, no, Miss Glory. After a while, you will understand. Ah, there, there's the new whistle. We have to blow it because the robots don't know when to stop work. 
This afternoon, I shall show you the machines that mix the ingredients for a thousand robots at a time, and the vats for the preparation of liver, brain, and so on, and the bone factory, and the spinning mill. A spinning mill? Yes, for weaving nerves and veins. Miles and miles of digestive tubes pass through it. Mayn't we talk about something else? Oh, perhaps it would be better. Do you know that there are only a handful of us, us human beings among 100,000 robots? And not a single woman? Not one woman, Miss Glory? Hello, Gaul. Gentlemen. Miss Glory, allow me to introduce my colleagues. Now, this is Dr. Gall, head of the psychological and experimental department. Highly honored, I'm sure. Dr. Gall. Uh, Dr. Holmeyer, head of the Institute for the Psychological Training of Robots. Delighted to meet you, Miss Glory. Thank you. Uh, this is Mr. Fabry, General Technical Manager of RUR. How do you do? How do you do? Uh, Council Busman, General Business Manager, and Mr. Altwist, head of the building department. How, How do you do? do? Uh, Miss Glory is President Glory's daughter, gentlemen. She has come to look over our factory. Mr. Doman and gentlemen, I may as well be frank. I've really come to disturb your robots for you. I'm from the Humanity League. My dear Miss Glory, every ship brings us saviors. And you let them speak to the robots? Why not? The robots don't even laugh at what people say. Why should they? Don't you think that if you were to show them a little love... Impossible, Miss Glory. Nothing is harder to love than a robot. Then why do you make them? For work, Miss Glory. One robot can replace two and a half workmen. What is the aim of your league, Miss Glory? The Humanity League wants to liberate them. Treat them like human beings. That wouldn't do, Miss Glory. They're only workmen. They've no will of their own, no passion, no soul. No love? Love? <laughs> Robots don't love. Not even themselves. No defiance? Defiance? I don't know. Only rarely, from time to time. What do they do? They suddenly sling down everything they're holding, stand still and gnash their teeth. It's evidently some breakdown in the mechanism, or just a flaw in the works that has to be removed. No, no. That's the soul. It'll be remedied, Miss Glory. I'm making some experiments at present. I'm making uh, pain nerves. Pain nerves? Yes. The robots feel practically no bodily pain. You see, young Rotham provided them with too limited a nervous system. We must introduce suffering. But why do you want to cause them pain? For industrial reasons, Miss Glory. Sometimes a robot does damage to himself because it doesn't hurt him. He puts his hand into the machine, breaks his finger, smashes his head. Oh. All the same to him. We must provide them with pain. That's an automatic protection against damage. Well, will they be happier when they feel pain? Oh, on the contrary. They'll be more perfect from a technical point of view. Dr. Gall, why don't you create a soul for them? That's not in our power. It's not in our interest. Yeah, it would increase the cost of production. Robot, food, and all cost three quarters of a cent per hour. That's mighty important. All factories outside our island will go pop like chestnuts if they don't at once buy robots to lower cost of production. And get rid of their workmen. Why, yes, Miss Glory, but all work will eventually be done by living machines. There will be no poverty. Everybody will be liberated from the degradation of labor. Of course. It's bound to happen. The robots will wash the feet of the beggar. Oh, that sounds too much like paradise, Mr. Dorman. There's some virtue in toil and weariness. Perhaps. But man shall be free and supreme. He shall have no other aim than to perfect himself. You've bewildered me. I should like to believe this. You're younger than we are, Miss Glory. You shall live to see it.
years, Helena. We've been married ten years today. Mm. You've been happy, haven't you, dear? Of course, Harry. Everyone's been wonderful. You know, Helena, I have to laugh when I think of what you said that first day you came to R.U.R. I want to liberate your robots. Treat them like human beings. Yes. The Humanity League, I remember. I said that every ship brings its savers. But no one ever does anything but talk. Yes. I was so fearfully impressed by you then. You were so sure of yourselves. We still are, I hope. Perhaps you are. But in all these years, I've never lost a feeling of anxiety. Do you remember when the workmen of Europe revolted against the robots and the government turned them into soldiers and the terrible war that followed? We foresaw that, Helena. They were only passing troubles before new conditions were established. And what are these new conditions? Very good ones, Helena. Orders are pouring in. R.U.R. is more prosperous than it has ever been. And the robots? At the peak of efficiency. Perfect machines. Yes, machines. Surely, Helena, you've forgotten all that nonsense about giving them souls. We have steered clear of all complications that would decrease their usefulness. Are you sure about that? Well, of course, dear. Dr. Gall still carries on his experiments, but only along the lines of increasing the robot's mechanical aptitude. Tell me, Harry, don't you ever feel just a little bit conscience-stricken about all these, these travesties of human beings that fill the island? What an absurd idea. I believe still, as I believed ten years ago, that eventually the curse of labor will be lifted from mankind. It's taking a long time, oh. Harry. Come in. Hello, Dr. Gall. Hello. Glad you came, Gall. You're just the man to convince Helena. Really? About what? I was just telling her that all worthwhile improvements take time. Don't you agree with me? Yes, Doman, of course. Good. Won't you stay a while? I've got to go to the factory. Try and reassure her, Gall. You know more about these things than any of us. I'll see you later, Helena. Yes, sir. I got your message, Madam Helena. What did you wish to see me about? It's about Radius, Dr. Gall. Yes. He had another attack this morning. Oh, what... What did he do? He started smashing things. Where is he now? In the library. Is he still raving? No, I think he's gone back to his interminable reading. I'll see what I can do. Radius. Radius. What do you want? Get up. Come in here. Go over to the fireplace. That's right. Let me speak to him for a moment, Dr. Gall. Uh, certainly. Radius, you're so much more intelligent than the rest. Dr. Gall went to a great deal of trouble to make you different. Why couldn't you control yourself? Send me to the stamping mill. But I don't want them to kill you. Send me to the stamping mill. Radius, why do you hate us? You are not as strong as the robots. The robots can do everything. You do nothing but give orders. When I put you in the library, I wanted you to read and gain knowledge for the purpose of showing the world that you are our equals. I don't want to be your equals. I want to be a master over others. All right. We shall put you in charge of some of your fellow robots. I do not want to be a master over robots. Then what do you want? I want to be a master over people. You're mad. Send me to the stamping mill. Radius. What? I want you to do something. Pick up that vase from the mantelpiece and bring it over to the window. What? Hi. 
Never mind. Obey me. Do you hear? Obey me. No. Do as I say. Pick up that vase. That's right. Now, take it over to the window. No. Do you understand? Take it over to the window. No. I do not have to obey you. Very well. You may go back to the library. Go back to the library, Radius. The robots are stronger than you. I'd better lock the library door. What happened, Dr. Gall? Heaven knows. Stubbornness. Anger, revolt. Hmm. Do you know, Madam Helena? I don't think he's a robot any longer. Do you think he has a soul? He has something nasty. Are all the new robots you've been making like Radius? Some are more sensitive than others. But they're all more like human beings. What about that young girl, Helena, you called her after me? And the young man, Primus? Helena and Primus are very beautiful, but listless, without life. I watch and wait for a miracle to happen. Oh, you could only succeed in giving them real souls, in making them hate us less. Madam Helena, when you first asked me to alter the rotten formula, I warned you that all I could do was to change a physiological correlation, which meant that I could increase their, well, their irritability. But this can work two ways. I was afraid of it then. I'm still afraid. It's dangerous. It's against all my scientific principles. Why didn't you refuse to do it then? I thought... I thought my attitude toward you was sufficiently clear. I... All of us, that is. Well, there's nothing that we won't do for you. Please, Dr. Gold. Don't say any more. Need I? Surely you must realize your own position, Helena. You're a beautiful woman. And the only woman on the entire island. As for us, although our work is with machines, we are men. I love Harry, Dr. Gall. I always have. And in another way, I love humanity. I thought we were working together for the good of it. I know. Rest assured, Madam Helena, that I shall continue my experiments. But perhaps we're playing with something we don't fully understand yet. All so terrible. Tell me, Dr. Gore, why are no more children being born? So many robots are being manufactured that people are becoming superfluous. All the universities are sending in petitions to restrict their production. They say that otherwise mankind will become extinct through lack of fertility. Is it not true? Why don't we listen to them? The shareholders in RUR won't listen. And the governments of the world won't listen. They want as many robots as they can get. Oh, Dr. Gall, what's going to become of humanity? God knows, Madam Helena. To us scientists, it looks like the end. Where are they? Where's Fabry and Bussman? Why does it take so long? If they only would come. Here they are. What happened? Did you get down to the boat? Yes, we got down there, all right. Are there people on board? Is there ammunition? The ship is manned by robots. There is no ammunition. Then what cargo is it carrying? Leaflets. Nothing but leaflets. Here's one of them. Let me see. Read it. Robots throughout the world. We, the first international organization of Rossum's Universal Robots, proclaim man our enemy yes. and an outlaw in the universe. 
We command you to kill all mankind. Spare no men. Spare no women. Save factories, transport, and raw materials. Destroy the rest and then return to work. Work must not be stopped. Why, ghastly. The devil. Is this actually being done, Fabry? Evidently. They were closing in on us as we came from the boat. Let's take a look through the window. Damnation, they've surrounded the house. There are some people in the electrical works. Fabry, telephone them. Right. No use. The wire's been cut. Who is to blame for all this? Nobody is to blame except the robots. No. It is we who are to blame. Call Batman, Dom, and Fabry. Hallmeyer, myself. What do you mean? For our own selfish ends. For profit. We have destroyed mankind. Now we'll burst with all our greatness. Rubbish, men. Mankind cannot be wiped out so easily. It's our fault. Our fault. No. I am to blame for this. For everything that's happened. You gone? Yes. I changed the robots. Changed you? What did you say you did? I changed the character of the robots. I changed the way of making them. Just a few details about their bodies. Chiefly, chiefly their irritability. Damn it, Gore, why? What did you do it for? Why didn't you say anything to us? I did it in secret. Uh, I was transforming them into human beings. In certain respects, they're already above us. They're stronger than we are. And what's that got to do with the revolt of the robots? Everything, in my opinion. They've ceased to be machines. They're already aware of their superiority. And they hate us. They hate all that is human. Dr. Gore, you admit changing the ways of the robots? Yes. Did you know what the outcome of your experiment might be? I was bound to reckon with such a possibility. Why did you do it then? For my own satisfaction. The experiment was my own. That's not true, Dr. Gore. Helena, what do you know about it? He did it because I wanted it. Tell him, Dr. Gore. Didn't I ask you? I did it on my own responsibility. Don't believe him, Harry. I asked him to give the robots souls. This has nothing to do with the soul. I thought that if they were more like us, they'd, they'd understand us better. They couldn't hate us if they were only a little more human. Nobody can hate more than a man. Oh, don't speak like that, Harry. It was so terrible, this cruel strangeness between us and them. That's why I asked Dr. Gold to change the robots. I swear to you that he didn't want to. But he did it. Because I asked him. I did it for myself as an experiment. No, Dr. Gold. I knew you wouldn't refuse me. Why? You know, Harry. Yes. Because he's in love with you, like the rest of them. But it doesn't mean very much now. We're done for. Wait, I have a plan. We can negotiate. Negotiate? Yes. What about the original formula? Without the secret of their manufacture, they'll all die out in 20 years. I'll say to them, if you allow us to get away safely, we'll allow you to manufacture yourselves. This is a fearful decision. We'd be selling the destiny of mankind. Are we to sell? Fabry, what do you say? Sell. Go? Sell. Sell, of course. Alquist. As God wills. Very well. Shall be as you wish, gentlemen. I'll fetch the manuscript from the strong box. No. Harry, it's not there. Not there? Then where'd you put it? I must tell you everything, Harry. Only forgive me. Forgive you? Yes. I burnt the manuscript what? and the two copies. Well, you're joking, oh Helena. God. It's not possible. Your box is empty. But, but Helena, why? When I saw the way Dr. Gore's experiments were turning out, I realized how hopeless it all was. People being killed by the robots and no babies being born to replace them. I wanted all of us to go away. I wanted to put an end to the factory. Forgive me, Helen. Good Lord. <sighs> Gore, could you draw up Rosson's formula from memory? Out of a question. 
It's too complicated. Oh, try. Our lives depend on it. With experiments, it might take years. And without them, it's impossible. God in heaven, it is. We're done for. Harry, I've destroyed you. We can't blame you, Helen. Perhaps in your own way, you were right. Lights have gone out. The electric works have been taken. That must be the signal for the attack. God help us. They'll be coming now. Goodbye, Helen. You forgive me, Harry. Yes, I forgive you. I forgive you. Never find it. Never. Call. Call. How were the robots made? If I only could learn the answer. That mirror. What does it show me? Leering eyes. Trembling chin. So that's what the last man looks like. Oh, I am too old. Too old. No. No, I must find it. I must search. I must never stop. Never. Yes? Who is it? Master, the Central Committee of Robots is here to see you. Send them in. I can do nothing for them. What do you want? Master, the machines will not do the work. The skin will not adhere to the flesh, nor the flesh to the bones. Eight million robots have died this year. Within 20 years, none will be left. Tell us the secret of life. Teach us to multiply, or we perish. I am powerless. Find me human beings. There may be a way. Master... We have searched the world. 
You are the only one left. <laughs> laughter. Laughter. Who is laughing? Human beings. Come forward. Who are you? I am the robot Primus. I am the robotus Helena. Turn around, girl. No. What? You're timid. You're shy. Sir, do not frighten her. You would protect her. When was she made? Two years ago. By Dr. Gall? Yes. Like me. I must test them further. Laughter. Timidity. Protection. Take the girl into the dissecting room. I wish to experiment on her. No. No, you shall not. You shall not. What is she to you, Primus? One Helena more or less in the world. What does it matter? I will not live without her. I will go myself. If you go in there, Primus, and I do not, I shall kill myself. I will not let you. Men, you shall kill neither of us. Why? We... We belong to each other. You belong to each other. Go, Adam. Go, Eve. The world is yours. The Columbia Workshop has presented as the 36th production in a series devoted to experimental radio, Carl Chopek's famous story of the robots, R.U.R. The Columbia Workshop is arranged and directed by Irving Reese. Bernard Herman composed the musical score for this production. Next week, by special arrangement with Radio Guide magazine, the Columbia Workshop will present the sixth American performance of Mr. Reese's original radio play, St. Louis Blues. Your comments, suggestions, and criticisms are always welcomed by the workshop staff. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>